Okay. Okay, so this is part two. And uh, uh, I had a little request before you start. Maybe you could recap slightly something from part one. that, uh, And I asked you at dinner last night. It had to do with the Hamilton's rule. Uh, the, the relation you wrote down just based on uh, the considerations of the uh, assortment, right? The, um, uh, yeah, so I mean, in, in these, so in the, in the models I was talking about, you have C and D, and they are, you know, in, ter in genetic terms, they are just the most simplest, the simplest genetic architecture that you can think of, meaning asexual reproduction, haploid genetics, one locus, two alleles, one allele is C, yes. the, other one, the other allele is D, and they just breed through. I mean, that's basically. There's no genetics in that sense. So if you talk about relatedness, either you, either the other individual is related to you with, you know, with one. But the point is that this coefficient, which you derived with no considerations whatsoever of kin or relatedness, has a natural interpretation. Then, in yeah. So a very um, simple, in the simplest genetic structure that you're laying down. So yeah, this is here. I mean, this. Yeah. So this would be the. The condition derived just based on this assortment, yes. and then you just you, re, you know you rearrange the terms. You get this condition, so you just rearrange the terms so that you have something of the form something times b is bigger than c, which is the usual form of Hamilton's rule. Correct. And then that something turns out to be just this excess relatedness, exactly the the, the relatedness. Conf uh, coefficient that you would use if you did kin selection. Yes. And that just supports my point that you know, if someone would analyze this model using kin selection, they would get the same result. It's just, a, it's just a, you know, they would just use different terminology. Yes, but this view is, you would say, more general. Well, it's in this case, it's equivalent. I think it's to, personally to me, it's more helpful because it immediately points to where we have to look, which is the mechanism for assortment, and also because it it applies to not only to intraspecific cooperation, which this is, but also interspecific meaning cooperation between species. It's the same basic mechanism that you need. It's, that's assortment. In other words. So now you need preferential interaction between cooperators in one species and cooperators in the other species. So it's essentially the same principle. And of course, the kin, kin, kin selection, they're not related to each other. They're two different species. So. OK, and at the risk of opening a can of worms, if I look at the paper by Wilson and Novak and Tornita, yeah. uh, are they saying this inequality is violated? In no, they, so they go a lot further, although, you know, I mean, even though I wrote something there in support of their paper, I have to say I wouldn't, you know, I wasn't all that convinced by what they say. I mean, I was convinced, but basically what they say is that if you do direct fitness, as I do, this is basically a direct fitness measure. I just look at, you know, on average, what's your environment and calculate fitness. So they said, in that sense, they said the same thing. You can do everything using direct fitness. And I think that's true. What they also said is that the inclusive fitness method is, is applicable in a much smaller subset of all evolutionary models, so to speak. So they basically said the direct fitness measure, 
the, the, if you consider the set of all situations or models or whatever you want to call them where you can apply the direct fitness measure method, yes. then that set is much, contains the set where you can apply inclusive fitness methods and it's much bigger than that subset. That's what they said, basically. And I am, and then of course, then the, but I, in my opinion, they didn't really, they just repeated this about three times. That's, a, that's also something that uh, John Maynard Smith used to say. If you repeat something three times, it becomes true. <laughs> so, and that's what they basically did in this paper, in my opinion. They just said that a few times, but they didn't really prove that the set of models that you can deal with with inclusive fitness is much smaller than the. Is that also include the statement that if you repeat something three times, it becomes Sorry? Does that include the statement? <laughs> <laughs> I can say it three times and then. <laughs> okay, I won't say it again. <laughs> so, and I mean, that's, of course, the, the proponents of inclusive fitness would say that's not true. And it is, I think what is true is that if you apply inclusive fitness, you have to make certain assumptions. Often they make assumptions of weak selection or something like this, or linear linear payoff structures or something like this. But I mean, I'm I'm not even that much of a you know of an expert in in inclusive fitness theory to to be able to really delineate all the situations. What I know is that inclusive fitness people would not would certainly not agree with that statement. In fact. They would say the, the opposite, so to speak. Which that's what I think is not true, the opposite. To me, they, you know, there are accounting methods, and I'm sure for every method there is some restrictions about when you can apply it. But when you can apply it, if you do it correctly, you'll get the right answer because it's just an accounting method. It's just bookkeeping. So if you do the bookkeeping in the right way, then you get the right answer. Same with the price equation. I mean, if you look at how the price equation is derived, it's just bookkeeping. It's all. It's just collecting terms. And I mean, you know, of course, if you make a mistake collecting terms, then you have a problem. But in and of itself, collecting terms is is allowed <laughs> in different ways. Okay. Thank you. And, for that yeah. Recap. Anyway, so uh, let's see. Well, so this would be the recap. But so now, so I want to maybe start with something we said. We talked a little bit about this morning, which was this. Uh, you know, what is what is fitness and optimization? I mean, it, it, and I'm the more I'm you know working in this area and so on. The more I realize that you know, fitness is a, is a, a very very problematic concept in general, and it is, in some sense, it is deceptively simple. It's the survival of the fittest, sure. Just and then you know we are at this optimization problem, and just the best one wins. But what it, what is fitness? And what I came to realize is that. I mean, and I guess I already said that this morning. So then I said it twice. I mean, evolution is basically a birth-death process. So we have some units that make copies of themselves and probably not very faithful ones or sometimes more faithful ones. I mean, that's a matter of having a map from, you know, 
parent phenotype or genotype to offspring phenotype or genotype. But basically, you have these units. They give birth to like units, and they die at some point, at, at some rate. And then this process unfolds, and, and that's what it is. And fitness is not a, a quantity that is necessary, a necessary ingredient for this process. Fitness is something that we derive out of the process. That we say, okay, we can extract this quantity, and then based on this quantity, we can make predictions, maybe. But fitness is not is not something you what you put in a model. So let's say you do a simulation of this. You put birth rates in there, death rates, and maybe the birth rates depend in complicated ways on the phenotypes and on the presence of other individuals and so on. But you don't put in a fitness. Why not? So I'm just thinking as a computer. So if I want to simulate a process, just uh, collapse, uh, do uh, right Fisher uh, population. So I'll pick numbers of population with probability that depends on an individual. And that property of an individual, or logarithm of that property, Call that fitness. So that, that's the fitness that I know. Yeah, but you extract that, you call it that. I didn't extract it from anything at the moment, I just define the simulation. That's how I program the computer. Right. No, but the, so, so we can uh, we can basically say that uh, there is uh, you know, some probability that your replicator generates uh, so many offspring. And you would call that the fitness. You see, that's not I'm the fitness calling, because fitness I'm is also. Joe. Yeah, so. I mean, I don't care, but it's a well defined quantity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, you but know. Now you're talking about some other fitness. And well, fitness is obviously. Survival. So I myself prefer thinking about the long term survival as. Uh, but I don't know whether we should call it fitness or something. Well, that's what I'm saying. Everybody has their own but, fitness measures. But this is. Uh, I view this as semantics, right? So the poor man's definition of fitness is uh, you know, some growth rate if you're deterministic or some probability distribution of uh, uh, number of offspring, uh, I think suffices for describing a lot of uh, interesting phenomena without uh, the need for discussion what uh, exactly it is. And, uh, is that what? Is that what you're saying? Michael? That's exactly what I'm saying. I, I'm not sure I understand. I mean, what I'm saying is an evolutionary process is a birth-death process, and that's what it is. Right. And then if we want to make predictions about this process, maybe we try to extract some... But in that birth-death process, there is a parameter that we need. Yeah. But I mean, that's... Okay, so I misunderstood what the... What I'm saying is that fitness, for example, you can, you can look from time zero to time 100, and then you collect the successful ones and say these are more fit. That's from time zero to time, times 100. If you go to times one, time 1,000, maybe some other ones are more fit. And then those are the more, you know, I mean, fitness is something that, that we, it's, it's like a, a quantity that we extract from the process to describe the process. But it's not something that we put in. What we put in are birth rates and death rates or what, you know, God or whoever, I mean, what, what, what are, okay, what's in there are birth rates and death rates. Uh, so you're sort of happy with uh, 
the birth uh, and death rates and the and I guess I would just call it fitness and, and be done. Well, so which one do you call fitness then? Uh, so what do you call fitness? Exactly that. What? Birth, birth, birth rate. Birth rate. Birth rate. The difference. Yeah. Birth rate is fitness, but what birth about death rate? Birth minus death, but that's instantaneous, or over ten generations, or over a hundred generations, or. Well, thing is, this instantaneous because when you want to solve something, that's what you need. Okay, so you extract yeah. the long-term behavior. But, but I mean, that's that's what it is. So then you, <laughs> okay, then you extract this quantity. No, I mean, what happens in one generation? But that's what it is. So then you extract the quantity <laughs> birth so minus my, death rate. My remark fitness. was not to start the discussion of what the fitness is, but try to avoid it. <laughs> yeah, saying that uh, uh, just exactly what we call it is a little bit semantic, but, and, but it's very clear in the context of the model what you need to do. It's not clear what fitness birth, is. Birth rate and the death rate. In, it's in not the model, what you just specify is. what exactly you're talking about, or in your experiment, you just say what you mean by fitness, or just don't use the word. Exactly. Number so of offspring, number of grandchildren. Number of uh, offspring relative to ancestor, whatever you're talking about, just say what it is. And all the and whatever you say what it is is a quantity that you extract from the process. Right. That's all I'm saying. So fitness definition, it's if it's just not clear what fitness is. You have to say what it is. It's not a priori survival of the fittest. Doesn't mean anything unless you say what you mean by fit. That's why people nowadays, when they're defining types of social behavior, say fecundity effects or something, they don't say fitness. They're talking specifically yeah, exactly. about the, a particular thing, number of offspring an individual produces. So fecundity is the uh, number of offspring term. produced. Okay, yeah. So that would be the birth rate, maybe. Yeah, yeah you can say, okay. I'm also fecundity. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, so, so one, one instance where I think, for example, there's fitness a priori fitness understand, understanding, so to speak, that seems to be there is problematic is in what I would call traditional models of group selection, because they talk about group fitness. But there's not even, in most of these models, there is no birth-death process on the level of the groups. But still there is group fitness. Doesn't make any sense to me. To me, selection only starts to make sense once you have a birth-death process. And then you can start say, you know, you can then use terminology like this guy has a higher birth rate, but the same death rate, therefore this guy is selected for. Because eventually it will be, its representation in the population will be, become bigger or something like this. But couldn't you calculate, you know, your, your birth death, death rate of individuals that are disaggregated into various groups and, and then determine which groups of individuals have better fitness than other groups? Yeah, that's it. Fitness, what is it? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Fitness is nothing. Fitness, in quotes, is nothing. Fitness is only something once you have a birth-death process. How do you define the groups in the first place? Right? You define them based on some characteristic of fitness. Mm -hmm. I mean, usually in these models, in these models, fitness of groups is just the average productivity times the, the group size or something. And I mean, I know what people mean when they say that. I just think it's... and. I think it's it's a misnomer, partly because in again, if and there are people like this, you know that they say these kinds of models that I was talking about yesterday, you cannot understand cooperation without understanding group selection, and I just totally disagree. 
because group selection in the form of the price equation and this average productivity is maybe one way of looking at things, but you can also look at it as another way. And, and in fact, what I think if you really want group selection models is you need a birth-death process at two levels. That's, so then you can talk about individual selection, which is what you see in the birth-death process at the individual level, and you can talk about group selection, which is something that happens in the birth-death process at the group level. So, and I mean, I am actually surprised by the fact that quite a few people are talking about group selection, but there are very few models that actually do this explicitly. So birth-death process at two different levels in the same model. So this is something we, we try to you know, work on. And so, of course, to do that, you, the basic assumption is that you actually can identify groups. You can say, okay, this is a group, and you have to say, okay, what does it mean that a group dies? Okay, a group dies, it goes extinct. For example, so one example is pathogens in a host. So let's say the host dies, then all the pathogens die, maybe, or maybe not, but it could be. Yeah. So why do you need because you, you have group level events that only depend on the group. So for example, you could have games between groups. Wars. Wars. Or, Wars. Or hunting parties that you need the group for. I mean, if, and if you can do that, then you have an individual level selection model. But then, I'm not saying you need to do that, but I'm saying if you, if my, in my opinion, if you want to talk about group selection, you need a birth-death process at the group level. Otherwise, you don't need to talk about group selection. But then you talk about individual selection and assortment into different groups, maybe, or something, but it's not group selection. It's just, so in my opinion, if, if, you, if you want to talk about group selection, you need, in, if you want to talk in general about selection, you need a birth-death process. That's all I'm saying. And so if you want to talk about individual selection, you need a birth-death process at the individual level, which we usually, this is what we usually assume in evolution. But if you want to talk about group selection, we need a birth-death process at the group level. So an example of your, to take the pathogen thing, an example of such a group-level process that would act at the group level, uh, which means we need to consider it as opposed to only considering the individual levels. Could it be like this pathogen thing? Host dies, so all, pa all pathogens in that host die. Yeah. That that would be an example of the type of level of, of action that you're talking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But you don't have to have group. Group isn't a binary concept. It's a, it's again a measure of covariance. And so, if you if you if you die, if your host dies then there's a high covariance of the death process for all the individuals. You can always write it as a, as a set of some, as a, in terms of individual processes. You just have a death process which has a high covariance yeah. for the individuals. Yeah. That, that may be true. It's it doesn't have to be a one or a zero, right? If, if some of your pathogens survive when the host dies, yeah. then you have a covariance that's not one. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying for, to understand pathogen evolution, you need to have a group selection model. All I'm saying is if you talk, if you want to talk about group selection, you have to have a birth-death process at the group level. So if I want to compare the fitness of 
people with incomes of over a million dollars to people with under twenty thousand dollars. Got two different groups defined by how much money they make every year. Yeah. Then I can look at their relative birth death rates and see which is more fit. Well, if they do have, if there is a birth death process at the group level, but I, I don't, no, I, I mean, don't. I mean the birth death process of all the individuals in aggregate in each group compared. Yeah. At, at, at that level. Well, then it wouldn't be a birth death process at the group, and so it's not group selection. No, it'd be, say that the poor people died, uh, uh, they, they had uh, 100,000 deaths per, per million births, and it was reversed for the, the people that made up over a million dollars. Mm -hmm. Could I compare them on, on the uh, subtracting um, deaths from births, mm -hmm. the level of fitness? Then I would just, you know, I would go, in that case, I would go to an individual level selection model and just say, Poor people have a different environment than, you know, different interaction environment than rich people, and therefore they have different kinds of birth rates and death rates. <laughs> but there's no, there's no. You don't need to know how much money they make. You just need to run a covariance analysis, and if you end up with clusters, you may or may not know anything about the money, but you know that there's something about the environment. There's something. I, if I understand what James is saying, it, it makes sense to talk about you as an agent of selection. Because if I kill half of you, I kill all of you. It makes less sense to talk about a sponge as an agent of selection, because if I kill half of the sponge, I don't necessarily kill all the sponge. Okay, that's a trivial example, but there, that's basically where all this comes from. And so, I don't understand what half, killing half, you can kill the whole sponge and then it's gone. Right, but there's no, there, there's no intrinsic covariance. The, the covariance between the survival of the individual eggs, components of the sponge is smaller than that of, the, of you. And so, it, anyway, I mean, I think, we're not arguing, it's hard to clarify. I don't, I don't, I agree with, with everything you're saying, I'm not. I think what Boris said worries me because Fitness is a result. It's not. A, it's not an input parameter. If you know the, if you know the fitness as an input parameter in your model, you don't have to run the model. You're done. Completely semantic. No, it's not I'm, semantic. I'm happy to accept your definition of fitness and use my model to calculate your fitness. I don't have any problem with it. I don't get to argue over what's meant by fitness as long as I understand. Okay, I'll just go on here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so here's a generic group selection model that we came up with, kind of like the what we, we like to think of it like the as something like the heat equation for group selection or something. But as I said, the basic assumption is that we can actually identify groups. So the groups they can so individuals can have. A number of different types, just label them one over k, and I'm sure you can extend this to continuous types and so on. But so, for example, you know, think of k equals two and cooperators and defectors. I mean, that's the that's the canonical example. And so, a group is specified by a vector x1, xk, where x1 is the number of one individuals, or type one individuals, and so on. So if we have cooperators and <coughs> defectors, then the group would be x1, x2. x1 would be the number of cooperators, and x2 would be the number of defectors. 
or you know, maybe it's better to think of densities than those are real numbers, but it could be either one because we can have a stochastic process or a deterministic one. But anyway, then we have this, actually what I'm going to show mostly is the deterministic formulation. So we have this quantity theta xt, which is the density of x groups at time t. So this is some distribution. And from this quantity, if we know this thing, we can calculate most of what we want to know. We can calculate the number of groups and the number of individuals of each type and so on. So basically what we would like to know is this thing in any given case. Now this, obviously this is a, well, theta x is a dynamic variable, and it's influenced by events at the individual level and events at the group level. That's the whole idea. So how is, what, what are individual level events? Individual level, both these events and, well, are basically birth and, and death events at the individual level, so we have birth rates of type I individuals in, so they live in a group, in some group, and so the, the birth rate may depend on the group composition. So there's only one group, right? It's a big group. No, 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 no. no. Here. Subgroups inside? It's, this is the density of all different X groups. Subgroups, but okay, so each of the XI is homogeneous. To be so each X is same. one type of group. X is okay. a, each X is one type of group. So this is this is a function. So X is k-dimensional. Yeah, every vector is a different group. Okay. Okay, got it. So this is a function on R k plus one, if you want. So this is a density. So you know it's kind of a landscape, and if it if it has if it has a lot, then you have a lot of this type these type of groups. And, so, but in a given group, individuals have birth and death rates, which may depend on the group composition. For example, if you have lots of cooperators in the group, you may have a higher, may have a, a higher birth rate or a lower death rate, whereas if you have lots of defectors, it may be the other way around. Or if you have a big group, maybe your birth rate goes down, something like this. And then at the group level, we also have birth and death. In other words, that means so there's a fissioning rate, so an X group can split up into some other groups, and then the way it splits up is described by a fissioning density, which says, okay, if X splits up, this is the probability, that, or the, the probability you know, that a, a group U is formed. I mean, you know, HUXDU is the probability that a U group is, or a group is formed in U and in, you know, in a small interval around you. That this could also be, for example, you could just say groups that split up, they just, everything, they just, they're just cut in half, for example. So this is something you have to specify as the, uh, uh, in your model description. I mean, all this, of course, is something then, eventually you will have to say what it is. Well, for example, one uh, can have one individual go off and start a new group. Yeah. I'm confused by your notation here because here, the moment you have a birth and death process within the, of an individual in the group, you become a different group. Yeah. And so, um, how do I track? Do, do the groups also have a? a, a you're, you're doing a master equation here, so that you don't have any ability to distinguish group one of group, group 
one group of given type from another group of the same type. So, um, how do I then track, or do I not need to track, um, the progeny, for example, of a group? There's no way then to track the progeny of a given group because there is no way of connecting. Not yeah, that's true. So you don't know. There's no lineage in this. There's no this lineage. Model. There's no so there's no, if you have an X group now, you don't know whether that X group is coming from a uh, X, you know, minus something group because of birth within the group or because, because it was fissioned off from another group. So you can't tell the difference. So that, that's quite, I mean, that, that's a, a strong set of assumptions. I guess so. Yeah, so this is just a, a first attempt, so to speak. You have no migration, you know, so you, you don't well, have spaces. So, we, you know, you can include migration, mm -hmm. just gets a little more complicated. You can include mutation between the types when, you know, so when, when you have uh, birth rates, birth, individual births, you can have mutation so that an XI type becomes an XJ type with some probability. Or you can have migration between groups. You can also include fusion of groups. So you have two groups, X, Y, then they fuse. They become an X plus Y group. But you have a fixed target space for X. X takes values in some domain. Yeah, so in, in this case, we have X. X is RK. And so similarly, for the fusion event possibility, we're, we would lose lineage information, or we're not tracking it at the moment. Yeah, so it just makes the, the master equation a little more complicated. So I just wanted to give you the simplest case. And as I said, you know, all these rates, these are of course in this, at this point, they're just some rates in any given model. And I'll give you some examples. You will have to specify what these rates actually are. And they may depend by interactions within groups. Or, you know, for example, fissioning and extinction rates, they may depend on, say, games that are played between groups. So that now you can include, because you have that level of units, so to speak, you can have games between groups. And there's, a, there's well, one of my collaborators has a paper where he uses those hunter-gatherers tribes, and where he actually included games. I think it, it was, uh, I don't know which games it was, which game it was, but games between groups that then affect the payoff from these games enter these rates. So anyway, so and then once, when you put, and this is just bookkeeping, this is the master equation. If you do that correctly, what you get is an, a, basically an equation, the dynamical equation for d theta over dt. And this is the equation. So this basically is the change in the group density due to individual level events. And this is the change in the group density function due to group level events. For example, this term here is integrating over the density times the probability that it fissions times the probability that the fissioning event of Y gives you an X group. So it's, I mean, this is it's very analogous to individual level selection. And this is, of course, this is the loss. So if, if a group, an X group fissions, it's lost. 
if it goes extinct, it's lost. And so this is just the bookkeeping equation for all the changes that can happen. And what's useful, in my opinion, about this is now you, you have these two levels separated out. And you can now, for example, make this definition. You say, so you, you specify all these rates. You solve for the dynamics in some way, mostly numerically. And then you can say, OK, if I don't consider, if I set this to 0, I look at the outcome. And then I, don't, I use the group level events, and I look at the outcome. And if the outcomes are different, then we have group selection. So if a trait evolves when this is present, but does not evolve when this is absent, you could say that the trait evolves by group selection. And that's, that's basically all, all I have except a few examples. So for example, okay, this is hunter-gatherer tribes without the, yeah, the most the simplest version. So in this case, we assume that we have these tribes. So those are our group units, and we have individuals in the tribes. We say we assume that defectors in a tribe have a higher uh, birth rate than cooperators. So in other words, so here we have two types of individuals, cooperators and defectors. So defectors have higher birth rates than cooperators. That would be, you know, that's a basic cheating conundrum or whatever. But then we also assume that larger tribes and tribes with a larger proportion of defectors are more likely to break apart because of internal strife let's say. And then smaller tribes and tribes with a larger proportion of defectors also have a higher uh, um, death rate, basically. Again, because they're just not as cohesive. Okay, but, uh, I thought that the whole point was to get the extinction of a tribe from uh, extinction of all individuals in the tribe. No. That's why you want no, no, no. The, the, That's the whole point is not to do that. The whole point is to have to actually have a group level event that is in that is independent of the individual level events. So we have a the whole point is that you have birth and death rates at the group level. That may depend on the composition of the group, but it's not it's not a consequence of individual birth and death. Well, so that's what, uh, yeah. So I, I thought that fission was uh, the birth rate for groups. Yeah. Right? That's what it is. Fission is the birth rate for the groups. The extinction for the group is the extinction of all individuals in yeah. the group. Yes. Yeah. Huh? No, not so a skewed, skewed sex ratio, for example, in lions would cause extinction even though individual lions are not diseased. It's just the chance that you will not have males in the population of so, I mean, so you're keeping track of males, right? that's what taxes inside the groups are for. But it's not because of what it is. So here you... I thought that the whole point of doing multi-level was that you would derive like the group properties from the birth, death... No, uh, then it's not multi-level. Then it's not multi-level. So here, for example, think of smaller tribes. Let's say they have, they engage in war. You have a smaller tribe, you just you know, are more likely to, to be wiped out in a war. So he's running parallel okay, birth, no, death, and processes. Exactly. Like, imagine a mollusk with okay, healthy Vibrio populations. A seagull comes and eats one of them. 
So here is, here is a numerical simulation of this deterministic model. So it starts out, this is more or less the starting density. It takes a while until the process is going. So most of the groups have very few cooperators and mostly defectors. But eventually you'll see there's some density cropping up here. Now it's getting a little lighter here. Some density cropping up here, which means that now we start to have some groups, not as many as those ones, but some groups that have a lot of cooperators and that have fewer defectors. And of course, the, the, this, this diagonal here would say how, many, how big the groups are. And so eventually you will see that we have kind of two peaks. Some groups consist of mostly cooperators and few defectors, and some groups still consist of mostly defectors and few cooperators. The point is, of, of course, if you don't have the group level events in this little example, the defectors win because they have a higher birth rate in the groups. Is your, split, is your um, splitting of groups assertive, or is it uh, no. okay. In this case, it's, I don't even know what it is. <laughs> but it's not, it's some simple function of, I think it's actually maybe just the case, I have to check, but it may be just the case in, in where it gets into two equal parts. Okay, so splitting is always equal. Yeah. So but of course, you could, I mean, in, in principle, you could include some assortative fishing or something like this. And you're going to get so, more complicated Yes. Yeah. So you could, you could imagine that if a group fissions, all the cooperators go in one group and all the defectors go in the other one. And that would be incorporated if we wanted to. So why, why, why does this work, actually? If, 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 Sorry? If, you have a, if, if small groups are likely to go extinct in your, NAS, in your model, right, then why should cooperators ever appear? Because they will start out as a small group, and they will go extinct with high probability. Well, so I mean, I guess, this, let's, let me just check. Is here. there some spatial thing that's going on as well? So the starting, so this is the starting. No. Population. So, you know, basically the, the starting point are groups that have in total maybe about 50, 50 uh, people in them. And, uh, but most groups have maybe, you know, four or five cooperators and 45 defectors in them. And, and that's just how it unfolds. If cooperation is a high payoff at the group level, then why would you uh, have models starting with defectors as the majority? Sorry, sorry cooperation has a, a high payoff at the group level yeah. over time. Then, then why have models that, that presume that defectors have some advantage in the beginning? Well, that's just the basic. I want to have a situation where, without group events, the defectors win. Right. So that I can then say cooperation evolved by group selection. I mean, that's, right. so it's just a toy example, obviously. Right. But, but I want to have an example where I can say, if I don't have the group level events, if I don't have any fissioning or any, any group, if I don't have any group level events, then defectors win. So now I include the group level events, and defectors don't win. What happens if you start with a majority of, of cooperators in a group? I think in this case, it, the, the equilibrium distribution will be the same. The so even if you start, like if you start this thing over here, eventually the end configuration will be the same. 
But the main point is that in the end, you will have at least some cooperators in this whole. It seems to me that your, your evolution equation for theta, which is the, the distribution of groups, is yeah. linear. So we are back in a situation like of the classic species. So that means that basically you are looking at the uh, asymptotic the asymptotic behavior will be determined by the dominating eigenvalue of that linear yeah, well, I mean, this, but, you know, and so the, the, the rates, they can be, you know, highly nonlinear, depending. So, for yeah, example, he's saying your master equation is linear in theta. Oh, okay. Quasi linear. Yeah. yeah. But, but this is a mean field kind of description of groups now, right? Which would be valid if you have really lots of groups. Yeah. So, okay, let me. And you probably want to. Uh, Precisely, since you're talking about birth-death process, being so, the regime where fluctuations of groups are important. So, so here is a stochastic simulation of a finite number of groups with finite individuals. That's just the same. I mean, the the the, the previous simulation is the infinite population limit of this one, and it's it's very you know it's kind of similar. You you have at the beginning you have these groups they kind of sit here and then eventually so this red dot it's not very visible. This red dot here is the average composition, and eventually you'll get some groups out here that can thrive. <coughs> and uh, yeah, so this simulation takes a little longer, or the video takes a little longer, but you can see how it now. <coughs> So these are actual groups, and the reason they change is both because of individual level events, because they, the composition changes as, say, the defectors have a higher birth rate, suddenly you, go, you, know, you become a group with more defectors, or because they fission. So if a dot suddenly disappears, that means it fission, or it went, it went extinct. So eventually you see that we will have a few groups over here, which is kind of the same as in the density before, where you have a, you know, this light blue density back down here. And overall, you know, the group composition is, so the group size, so there's also, I think, in the model, well, larger groups are more likely to split to fission, so group size is around 50 or 60. Are there any values of the group uh, level events? Sorry? Are there any levels of group value events that result in near extinction of majority defector groups? So, if, so extinction is more likely in groups that have a higher proportion of defectors. Mm -hmm. But you still have pretty good survival of majority defector groups, at least. If they are, if they are large enough. They're large enough. Yeah. So small groups tend to go extinct more easily. and. Uh, groups that have a high proportion of defects. So basically there might be some minimum some group size threshold that you could set right. that would discourage uh, or disfavor. Right. Yeah. yeah. How, how sensitive is this to your form of your, your penalty functions? Because you've got a lot of, you've got a lot of functions here. Yeah. And uh, these are if you, how, how sensitive are your results? For example, here, it doesn't look like you really have a, where you're going here, it doesn't look like there's, there are multiple uh, local maxima of 
I mean, do you get, do you get pseudospecies with, with local maximum density, or is this basically just a continuous wash of density? It's hard to tell from the top. Looks like maybe you're getting two peaks. Yeah, I think, well, so judging from the PDE results, you would get one bigger peak and one shallow peak. You get it. <coughs> So, sir, I still don't uh, quite understand uh, the, 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 the general goals and the logic. I, I love your model. Uh, <laughs> that's that's good. But, uh, um, you somehow say that you are trying to generate an example yeah. where group selection is important. Yeah. So okay, so I, that's I, wonderful. So you you've done it. So is there an example where you can uh, get cooperators to cooperate without group selection? Well, you know, that, that, so I had, yesterday I had some examples so of that, uh, where you have the, you know, spatial structure and so on, so the... But, but within this sort of model, you know, you could I, just, I guess what I'm trying to say is, uh, I, I don't really know the history of the subject. I don't know what it's all about. Um, uh, I can sort of start to trying to think about uh, you know, Nicolas' experiment that he still hasn't uh, told us about. Uh, so with these uh, bacteria that generate public goods, uh, and, uh, and of course, maybe very cheetahs generated by mutations. And then I sort of start thinking, OK, uh, presumably, you don't understand what's going on there. We have to think about. Uh, mutations, and we have to think about the uh, ecology of, uh, of the state. So presumably, uh, 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 they don't always live in uh, his petri dish, but uh, the sort of natural uh, behavior is more like they co colonize a host or you know, some puddle, and then uh, some of them are going to escape and colonize another puddle. Right? And that sounds very much like your model. Uh, except I would have said that uh, uh, the dominant process of creation in new groups is uh, taking uh, so few individuals and uh, transporting yeah. them uh, somewhere else. I mean, and could, then uh, easily... large colonies will, uh, so successful colonies will be more likely to seed the uh, new things. Uh, defectors will not succeed in forming new groups. So uh, we'll be filtering for cooperators that will be more likely to generate a large group. And uh, then we'll take some time before they get overrun by, uh, by uh, defector. And I'm pretty sure that, that in a model like this, you will have, uh, yeah. so, and I'm, it's entirely I'm... in the scope of your, of your formulation here, right? Yeah. So within your, uh, uh, sort of group, I don't know, whatever, multi-level model, you can have uh, different scenarios for evolution of uh, cooperation, and we can stop arguing about it. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not 100% sure what your point is, but let me repeat, all I'm trying to say is, one, if I want to, in my, that's just my opinion, if, if this is how, how I do things for myself. If I want to have a group selection model, I need to have 
a birth death. Wait, 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 wait. Let me, let me. Why do you want to have a group selection model? That's what I, because that's the, it that's may, because I tell you why. Are you saying that because the cells in your brain giving you signals, or because there's an emergent property of you interacting with other people that's doing it? Okay, that's exactly relevant to the question. And a multicellular organism is a group of cells, so we model it at the individual level. And if you look at I think a useful thing of this framework is that you can well, separate... Well, that's a completely different model. If, if, uh, if we have to start uh, talking about multicellularity, and uh, right, we, we, we have to sort of start uh, uh, talking about... Uh, okay, so, so, Sorry about go, that. Go, 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 yeah. I shut up. I listen. Okay. Let me, again, I just want to repeat. what. So if we want... In my opinion, if I want to have a multi-level selection model, I need a birth-death process at multiple level. That's, that's one of the basic things that I'm trying to say. And so that's what we did. And then I'm saying, okay, now if you have such a model, you can actually... So you have to realize, you know, group selection is... is, a, is a lot of people talk about this stuff. For example, the, the predominant theory about cultural evolution of cooperation and religions is a group selection theory. It's called cultural group selection. But they don't have they don't have any models for this. They just talk about it. They say groups that have, you know, these religions are more strong stronger than these other groups that have this kind of religion or something like this. But they don't have a model. They just talk about it. So I think if you you know if you want to have a formal fr framework for this kind of thing. You need, multi you need to have this birth-death process at these multiple levels. And then if you have it, you can actually determine or you can define what you mean. Or I can now define what I mean when I say something evolves by group selection, which is what I said before. When, it, when the trait appears, like in this previous example, cooperation appears is maintained when I have the group level events, but is not maintained when I don't have them. So then I can say for myself, cooperation evolves by group selection. But you could equally well have designed this so that your groupless model produced produce cooperation, and you added group processes that destroyed cooperation. Yeah. So, but I didn't in this case. Right, but I mean, of course, I'm not saying that. I'm not. I'm not saying that group selection is important in general. I'm not saying that cooperation always evolves by group selection. I'm just giving one example where I can say group cooperation evolves by group selection. Just it's just a proof of principle. No, I understand, but you, but, but, your point is a more general one, which is you've got an example where the outcome with and without group selection is different. Right. In this case, you've shown an example where you get cooperation with group selection and not without. You could build one where you get cooperation without and not with. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And then you would say defection involves by group selection. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'm just saying if the, the outcome is different between a model where I have group events and one that where I don't have, then I can talk about group selection. Sure. It's it's yeah, it's fairly. It has nothing to do with cooperation. No, no. that's the point. No. But I mean, I thought you know we kind of. I mean, 
people talk a lot about cooperation or group selection in the you know, context of cooperation. So here's another brief example where we have two kinds of cells, sticky and normal cells. And groups are cells that stick together and cells can stick together so the groups can consist some, can have some normal cells and some sticky cells and we assume that the normal cells reproduce faster than the sticky cells as individuals but stickier organisms are less likely to fission and more likely to fuse so this is actually a case where we have cell, uh, group fusion in the model and oops and Smaller organisms are more likely to be eaten by predators. We also have predators in this case. So in other words, at the group level, it's good to be sticky so you get a little bigger and you don't get eaten. And again, it's very clear just from the assumptions that if you don't have group level events, the normal cells take over because they have a higher growth rate. That's all, at the individual level, that's all there is. Death rates are the same. But then if you include the group level events, what you see is you know, this, this kind of dynamics. This is the equilibrium configuration. I don't have any uh, simulations for this case, I mean, any videos. And ex Do you see a bifurcation? Because this is also a model for two for metastases. People, people think that this is a similar model for metastases where you think that cells either divide or migrate because they have to decide on, on how to right. share resources. And people have experiments in vitro at least where you can, you can watch them and when they clump, they don't turn over. Whereas, so, so, so when, sorry, when they, when they clump, they turn over, they, they grow locally. And when they migrate, they're single migration, so they sort of part, single cells going forward. Mm. So I, I wonder if you, if you could see bifurcation behavior in this way, you can change the the amount of sticky cells, sticky cell groups versus normal cell groups, if you change some parameters. Yeah, I have to say, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm assuming you can see some sort, or at least you can see a bifurcation when the sick, stick, sticky cells start to stick around. Now you say that fast mm -hmm. many times and then... It becomes true, yeah. But if you're not looking at the heart problem here, which is how you get your sticky cells to have their reproduction rate not just to be slower than the normal cells, but to go to zero. Okay, this simulation is easy to run, but if you then try to do a simulation where the cells initially have a choice of replication rate, and you want to get germline somatic separation, that's really hard. At least for me, I've been banging my head against it for a while now. We've never get it to work. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I have to say, so, that may, that may be entirely true. So all we have here is a few toy examples. But I do actually believe that, and we are working on this, that I think that this framework can be used and extended to quite a number of situations. I don't know whether that's it, your situation would be included. But. So for example, what we are trying to do is to extend this to cultural groups of selection, where you have both genetic and cultural evolution. Is there, is there a finite amount of stickiness for which you don't get these sticky cells? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's easy to find parameters where, where it doesn't work. But a finite set. You have to have finite stickiness, and they still won't be able to, to, to form large groups. Um, what do you mean by? Zero. Yeah. 
I mean, you know, stickiness, like we, we don't actually model the adhesion of cells. We just assume two types of cells and, and if, you know, if you have more A cells, which would be the sticky cells, you just don't break up as easily. There's no parameter for stickiness. Yeah. So what's the, sorry. Okay. What's the relationship between assortment, as we spoke of yesterday, and uh, our group processes here? That's in my next them? next example. Okay. <laughs> and that's going to be the last one. You'll be happy to hear. But I, I want to, yeah, sorry. I, I had a question about that graph that you showed, uh, sorry, the, the plot. Um, the equilibrium, yeah. yeah don't ask it? me about this because I don't <laughs> understand it. That cliff and the funny I diagonal. I, right? I, honestly, I don't know what it is. Suggestive of something, but okay. Yeah, I don't know what it is. All right. Always my question. But that's what we get. Okay. So the final example is, is, is actually very similar to that hunter-gatherer example. It's just, but it, it's actually the public goods game, so than what we talked about yesterday. So we have groups, varying sizes, and within these groups, they play the public goods game. And individual birth rates are given by the payoff from the public goods game. So in other words, within each group, again, was what, what uh, was at the very beginning yesterday. Within each group, effectives always have higher birth rates than cooperators, independent of whether it's weak or strong altruism. Then we have logistic death rates, just to avoid you know that groups become bigger and bigger and bigger, which are the same for both uh, types of individuals. And then we again assume these group-level events, and of course, it's just we just try to make it work to make a you know, make a point. Larger groups and groups with larger proportions of cooperators are less likely to go extinct. Groups with larger proportions of defectors, oops, that should not be here, are more likely to fish. So if you have more defectors, you're more likely to break up. If you have more cooperators, you're less likely to, to die. And so I question though, I mean, this is incredibly cool stuff, but does it, correct me if I'm wrong, does it not presu uh, presume that cooperators and defectors will only give birth to cooperators and defectors? Yeah, it does. But Why is that? No, actually, so I should say it's easy to incorporate mutation so that if, if a cooperator gives birth, it still gives mostly birth to cooperators, but with some small you know, probability of mutation, it actually gives birth to a defector. But we still have only the two types. That's presuming that cooperation and defection are genetic traits, yeah, right? Yeah. But that's not necessarily true. But that's assumed here. I mean, this is that's yeah. a, like a, that's a standard assumption in many of these models. But, yeah. But, I think it's a terrible assumption. But, but it, I mean, you can also you know come back to the to the covariance. It's just an assumption that if I'm, it could also be cultural evolution. If I'm a cooperative parent my offspring is most likely also going to be a cooperator. That's the assumption. I'm not saying that that's normally the case, but that's the assumption. So it, whether that's genetic or cultural doesn't really matter. But in, it, usually in behavior, you know, in hopped-off games, famous hopped-off games that we heard about this morning, John Maynard Smith, they assume, I mean, they said it explicitly, we assume we have, you know, a hawk genotype. But they didn't, I mean, the thing is, that's the thing about, you know, what I tried to say also this morning. In biology, it's not like they really think there is one gene that makes a hawk. It's just a simplifying assumption to, make, to have them, to, that allows them to think about stuff. 
Does it then become intractable if you make it more complex? Well, the thing is, nobody knows what makes a hog genetically. There's probably hundreds of genes involved, involved, or maybe not, or maybe you know three major ones and ten minor ones or something. But I mean, if it's this model, if you start putting in probabilities that are cooperating. Well, no, it doesn't necessarily make it less tractable because this is all numerical stuff anyway. And you could nature, but no nurture in here. You could put in nurture. Yeah, and that's what we try. That's what, that's what we will do. In in uh, so if you have if you talk about cultural evolution, you have to take into account that an individual during its lifetime may actually change its phenotype because it it, it learns something or it adopts a different religion or something. And then so then you have something, and and then it transmits the new phenotype to its offspring. That's like Lamarckian evolution. And epigenetics too. But it's yeah. not just cultural or epigenetic. You can, also, you can also have genetic regulation based on environment, right? Yeah. I mean, so that's another situation you can have. I mean, the, the original game theory models is like they would, uh, when you have mixed strategies, you, you have a probability of doing cooperation or cheating or one of these strategies, and, and uh, that's allowed to vary. You, there's also models where you express a different behavior depending on the situation. So you're not necessarily a cooperator or cheater or Right, or, right. Dub or whatever, but you express a different behavior based on what you're encountering or And I mean, you know, in, in this case, you could have, for example, mixed strategies where you, you do something with the probability, the certain probability, or, and another thing with another probability. So. But your evolution equation for strategy is just another master equation, which depends on your state and the state of your environment. Yeah. And I mean, the problem is you could write into the number of these these dependencies, yeah. and each time you write a dependence, you have to make some assumption about a functional form for those dependencies. And the more of them you put in, the more potentially fragile. First, the longer longer it takes to, to examine your parameter space, and potentially the more fragile your models are. Because then you have to show that for a whole range of assumptions for each one of those dependencies, you get the same class of result. One thing that I think uh, is potentially useful from splitting up the levels and having the birth, uh, death on both levels is that you can include properties at the group level that you can't describe with a simple individual level model. To give an example, if you have many different differentiated cell types in an organism, that lead to emergent group level properties. But you don't want to create that explicit link between 100 different you know, types of uh, functions going on at the cell level. And you just want to have two cell types in your uh, cell-based model, yet you want to include the emergent properties of interaction at the group level. Uh, the problem is that, well, in the situations where you're, you're going to have those emergent properties, Supposedly, you're past the point in evolution where the cooperator cheater genre is a problem that's been overcome. But of course, that then can uh, pop up again with like long-lived multicellular organisms. You, you can have maybe the problem arising again with potential for cancer um, or fusion evolves. Right, organisms evolve to fuse. Their uh, population structure changes. You can have organisms with emergent group level properties that are now encountering the problem, basic problem of cooperation again in a new context. Yeah.
And so in those situations, if you're able to include at the group level properties that you're not describing with your individual model, I think that could be useful. I agree. On, yeah. Okay, so I wanted this example I actually only show because of this assortment problem. So again, it's the same kind of setup. Without group level events, cooperation goes extinct. With the group level events, cooperation is maintained. And so this is the graph, it's kind of complicated, but this is the initial density. This is the total density of this theta over time. The index is time. So basically, I think this is equilibrium at time 600 and cooperation is maintained. And what's shown here is what a focal, an average focal C player, what kind of group composition, group density it sees. In other words, what are all the groups that C players occur in? And this is the same for D players. So at the beginning you see they're basically the same. But over time, you see that the group density, the group distribution that a cooperator sees has more cooperative groups than the group density that a defector sees. And that's this assortment. Basically what that means is that cooperators see a more cooperative environment on average than defectors. And that's what maintains cooperation in this particular case. So if you switch the rule that you had before, would you never see convergence to an equilibrium distribution? So it, well, which rule? If you go to the previous slide, so you had said larger groups with larger cooperators are less likely to go extinct. If you switch that, well, I don't know. Then, again, you know, we didn't, we didn't explore you, everything here. We just, we just produced some examples <coughs> where we can make some points. So I don't know what happens if, if for example, we, we switch this less to more. How stable is your, so you're making a conclusion about assortment based on this. I'm not making a conclusion, I'm giving an example. I'm giving an example of how assortment is, can be extracted from this model. And what's important here is the assortment changes over time. So in fact, if you would go to the individual level description, you would need dynamics of the assortment, so to speak, because it changes. And that's what makes it complicated, of course. And that's, for example, in many kin selection models, R is something that's given. Yeah. But if you, if you would extract it here, R, it would change over time because the population structure changes. So you need a dynamic equation for R or for assortment to capture this process. Did you study infection of this by, by either defectors or infection of the stable situation? Like yeah, so I mean, I, so as far as I know, all these equilibrium distributions that we have, that I've shown here, they're all stable. So they, in other words, I'm not, I, mean, I can't really say that they are all like unique. I'm not sure whether they all, the system always go there from any initial condition. Although that would be my guess. But uh, I think they are stable, so if you change them around a little bit, they will go back to this. In the, in the single level, we saw that some kind of assortment, which I'm thinking of as heterogeneity, 
many times is uh, can 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 give you can give you cooperation. And what I'm wondering is, should can, is it useful to think about these different group level processes that we're seeing here in the multi level example? as just one type of assortment that could occur? I, I think the general answer is no. Uh -huh. I th because assortment, if you know, let's say you have group level games, knowing the group types of groups that you occur in doesn't give you information about how you do in those groups when you play the games against all these other groups. So you need that additional information. So in general, in a group selection model, when you have all kinds of group level events, assortment is not enough anymore. Yeah, group level event contains these additional pieces of information. Yeah. Okay, so, well, and actually, so this is just another uh, repetition of this point about the dynamics. I mean, at any point in time, so this is, for example, the number of cooperators divided by the number of defectors. And at any point in time, something like I talked about yesterday, this interaction group, uh, this you know, assortment, Hamilton's rule, a price equation, would give you basically the direction of this change. But So if you look at this system here, you would predict, okay, cooperators go down, let's say from Hamilton's rule. But in the end, they don't. So you can, what that means is these kind of short-term predictions based on, say, Hamilton's rule of price equation, if you don't have a dynamic equation for relatedness or for assortment, they're not useful because the long-term might be completely different because they cha these parameters change over time as the population is evolving. Anyway, that's, that's the point I was trying to make here. That's the same model as before. Okay, here, this is from yesterday. And my point here, I think, so my general view is this, if you have a single selection model, assortment is enough to explain cooperation. There are other methods that also work, but, they, but there is no single method that you can say you need this or you don't understand it. And, you know, I mean, this, this sounds, in, in view of the fact that everybody is talking about this, it sounds a little weird, but it's really what I believe. It's in a world where we don't have these concepts, we can still understand cooperation. That doesn't mean that these, are, these concepts are totally useless or anything like that. But it means that any claim that these, these concepts are necessary are, in my opinion, unfounded. And then, for multi-level selection models, again, I've said, so now I've said it more than three times. It must be true then. <laughs> so you need, in my opinion, again, you need birth and death process at multiple levels. Then you have a multi-level multi model. And so, for example, if you, these, so the group level events, they can determine the dynamics of a sort. But in general, Assortment alone is not enough. So now you actually, with, in general, with group level events, you, there is something else going on than just individual selection. Now I should say, you know, in, just like the weather, in principle, could be reduced to dynamics of individual molecules, I guess, or atoms, or even elementary particles, or something, in principle. 
you know, we don't do that because it's not feasible. So in the same way, you could take this group selection model and do everything on the individual level, but it would be, it would be completely unwieldy and it wouldn't give you any biological insight. I'm thinking about your death process. So for your death process, if I write it as a covariance, so I say, okay, my probability of dying is some probability, is to say, independent of time, independent of my environment, which is your basic death process, and then plus some function of the number of my neighbors that are dying. Now that function, if it's an increasing function, is in your case it's a step function. If they all they all either you all die together or you don't die. But I can also define something where the more of my neighbors die, the more likely I am to die. And that now doesn't have to be a step function. It can be any yeah, continuous function. And do you call that a multi-level selection process or not? It's it's a mixed process. I probably wouldn't because you can easily describe it at the individual level. Right, but, but even your case of killing everybody, it can be described that way. It's just the limit. No, if you have process. games between groups, I mean, as I, as I just said, in principle, you can describe everything at the individual level. It's a matter of, of whether you know, it's, it's convenient to do that. So for example, if you have games at the group level, it'll be hard to describe that at the individual level. Because you have to take into account all the different groups, what their composition is, and how they would do in the game against your group. Well, certainly it's a convenience factor, but it's also hard in the model that you have. If I want, I, I can't easily then include the situation where half of my people die collectively, and half of the people in my group don't die. No, that's easy. To that's a, that will be a fissioning process, for example, the loss. Where you kill it out. Yes. But that's also very, I mean, I mean this, this. All I'm saying, I'm not saying, I'm not disagreeing with your approach. I'm just saying that, that, that I think just the way you were saying that it's a bookkeeping issue, as, at least as a matter of principle, this is also a bookkeeping issue. You could write these multi-level, most of these multi-level selections, processes in the form of individual process. I, I totally agree. And I think, in, I actually think that most of what people now refer to as group selection models should be viewed as individual level selection models because they are not really, they don't have a birth death process at the group level. They have, they have, this, they have this correlation, and they have group productivity, but that could be easily formulated in terms of environment, interaction environment. So in fact, that's, that's exactly my point, that most of the models that are now used to say something about group selection should actually not be called group selection models and can be rephrased in a simpler framework. And what I'm trying to say is that if you really want to have group selection models, and, and I'm not saying even, you know, again, I'm not saying this is, I'm not claiming any exclusivity that this is the only way you can do it. But to me, it makes sense if you really can identify groups and you want to talk about different levels of selection, then you should have a model with a birth-death process at different levels. And then you can, you can compare events that, have, that affect one birth-death process or another birth-death process and, and compare that.
Yeah. Can I ask a last question? What is the dynamics of the number of groups in uh, the, the first example? The, what, what is the dynamics of the number of groups? How does the number of groups change? In the first, with the hunter-gatherers? Uh, no, before. With the, the, the simulation with the black points. The stochastics. In the stochastic simulation, the evolution of cooperation, the, the YouTube video. Right, the video of the stochastic one. Um, I think we have some global logistic death term for the groups. You know, so in, in other words, as you have more and more because groups. In the simulation, it seems that the, the, the number is increasing. I don't think so. It's hard it to may, tell because they're it may. all overlapping at the beginning. <coughs> yeah. Right. You can't see how many discs or dots there are. Right? Yeah. So, so there's some there's some easy, so to speak, you know, something, some easy cheat that we did. We just said the, the extinction rate goes up with the no, goes up linearly with the number of groups. Just a logistic, a logistic death term at the level of the groups that keeps the the number of groups in check. That's right. Just a logistic death term mm -hmm. at the level of groups. Okay, that keeps okay. So that keeps, you know, gives you some carrying capacity or something. Okay, because he, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but if you start with one group, mm -hmm. and uh, you can have fission, so you can create uh, groups, so you can do a kind of decision. But you're killing also. Huh? There's a death rate also. Yeah. Right? There's a birth and death. So fissioning and there's death. So if you start with one group, it may happen that the, that the population goes extinct. But Will your master equation work if you use some other parameters besides birth death, like say Gini coefficient or something like that? Say what? So like, will like will what? the master equation Yeah, like, like which, co which parameter? Like the Gini, G-I-N-I coefficient that, that measures uh, increases and decreases in, in uh, poverty or well-being or whatever. I mean, if you were to, instead of using birth death rates, if you were to to survey various populations for X, Y, or Z, you know, happiness or number of cars or whatever. Will, will this work to, to show um, fitness, as it were? Well, mm, not sure, because, I mean, what drives this process is birth and death. That's Couldn't it be some, some other data? But, I mean, how does, ha how does happiness do anything? It's just an opinion held by a whole bunch of individuals, is what it would be. But you know, still, be I mean, it could, you know, in terms of. So, if if this is cultural content, for example, then that itself could have a birth or a death rate. So, happiness could be, you know, be transmitted and maybe die in a person, or. But I mean, it, the evolution of anything requires a, a birth-death process in that anything. So, yeah. if you if you want to if you want to study the dynamics of happiness, you have to have a birth-death process of happiness. Right. So you could, and if you want to do that, yeah, then you could do that. I mean, I think these models can be used to study cultural evolution. That's, yeah, that was the point I was getting yeah. to, yeah, cultural evolution. Yeah. yeah, I think so, and that's what we, that's what we actually tried exactly. to do. Exactly, Stewart and people, archaeologists back in the 20s and 30s did study cultural evolution. Uh, yeah. Well, and you know now it's it's Rob Boyd and Joe Hendrick and these guys and and, and as I said, you know they and they have these large scale studies of of religion, and their one of their main hypotheses 
is that religion, the way we have them today, religions with these central authorities, moral authorities, they evolved because of cultural group selection. That's what they claim. Because these, these societies that have these kinds of religions, they, or this kind of religion allows for more cooperation. That's basically what they claim, and therefore for a more powerful society and for a bigger society, and, and therefore they, these kinds of societies would absorb or extinguish smaller societies. So that's kind of what they, and I'm just repeating what they say. Yeah, but useful in, in uh, voter dynamics too. I mean, and, and so that's the kind of stuff that we actually are probably going to look at, whether that, you know, how that plays out in a model like this. So in the, I'm still stuck on this uh, analogy you gave with weather, where in principle we should be able to reconstruct it, but we know that we can't. There's some other level of, I'm thinking if, if that were, you know, a molecular problem, what I would say was, well, you don't know enough yet about the individual parts. And once you do, you will see that this, uh, mysterious group level process or whatever it is actually now can be reconstructed. Do you think that that is the case? I know it's very abstract, but that you're talking about here? If we knew enough about individual level processes, could we then describe what we're now having as new parameters as group processes yeah. in, with, with those individual parameters? Well, or I guess. Is there something distinct? So I think you, I, I know what you're getting at. I, I don't I, understand the question. Are you saying if we knew more about the water molecule, we could understand a hurricane better? Yeah. And, and about the interactions of the water molecules with all the other molecules around and with, with yeah. all the four. Before the human genome was sequenced and said, well, we get genome and then we can build humans. Then it turns out, no, we're doing that. Oh, we didn't understand. Well, now we know about microRNAs, so that's definitely it. So now <laughs> we have it. In five years, there'll be another level of gene regulation that will be discovered to be important for every single biological process, and that will be the new thing. And then, we'll, then we still won't be able to build any organism. So I'm wondering if, so that's my view. This is why I think that we don't. So I'm wondering if, if there are, right now, I think if I understand what you're saying, um, assortment is not the same as a group process because a group process has other properties that cannot be contained in or explained with combinations of assortment. Yeah. But if we know, but does that mean we might be missing something about assortment if we found out more about assortment? No, I think there is just other stuff going on. Other stuff that we cannot reduce. Like group to. games. I mean, group games just don't, Assortment doesn't tell you anything about interactions with, it tells you which groups that you tend to live in, but it doesn't tell you how these groups would fare in competition in a game with other groups. Because that's, that's additional information that you have to put in there. And we can't derive that from the properties of the individuals no. in the group. I can't. I think if you said to an atmospheric scientist, we need to know more about a water molecule to understand the course of a hurricane, mm -hmm. they would they would disagree very strongly. Mm -hmm. They would say, we know enough about individual water molecules. That's interesting, right? Because uh, because in uh, you know at the risk of whatever, put all of us into boxes. From a biology perspective, what we often think physicists are doing in biology is trying to tell us that the reason that we don't understand our systems is because we haven't found out the real fundamental properties about their component parts. And so once they do that, then we'll be, I'm caricaturing, right? Okay, so it's all, um, so, so I'm, I'm just, but I do think, I do tend to think that, that reduction is helpful, and so I'm just wondering if there is a relation that you think so, is helpful or not. I mean, I think, 
So assortment is not enough in the sense that you need to have this additional information about games. Once you have all this information, then in turn it is possible to reduce everything to the individual level. Once you have all the model ingredients specified and say, okay, this is how it works, then you can go back and you know say, okay, this individual has a probability of such and such to live in this group. If it lives in this group, has a probability of such and such to encounter this other group. Now I know what the game would go because I already specified that. So it, and from this game, this and this would happen. So this individual would. So you can calculate what you know on average what the fate of the individual would be once you have all the ingredients. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, I think you could reduce it to the. But it's not useful mm -hmm. because this individual. Fate would then contain all this, you know, group games and all this other stuff that, uh, you know, where, where I think it's much more useful to know about the group game, not just how it impinges on this particular individual. So once you have all the ingredients, it's possible, I think, to reduce it to the individual level if you have all the information. But nevertheless, so assortment anyway is not enough if you have, for example, group games. So then you, that's an additional ingredient that you need to specify. Going back to uh, changing gears a little bit and stepping back to uh, evolution of multicellularity, right? Uh, yeah. Because, uh, and so um, I could point. Uh, I was going to make that was exactly James's uh, point of me. Uh, so there was another issue there, right? Evolution, uh, not just of cooperation versus defection, but uh, evolution of separation of labor. Right. As in uh, uh, evolution of the general. Yeah. Uh, and uh, again, I can sort of very easily imagine that, you know, just writing down little models where group with separation of labor will have higher fitness and they'll grow and uh, we can do that mm. but exactly what have we learned from it so then the question is uh, how do we pose the problem in such a way that uh, we can both answer it and learn something from from the answer so and I guess I don't know any better than uh, to abandon uh, so abstract uh, uh, models for a moment. I love abstract models. Yeah. But so back off and try to think of what is the phenomenon that we want this model to describe. So I can't think of uh, uh, anything at the moment uh, uh, um, better than uh, you know, dictyostelium. So there is uh, some sort of a slime mold, and uh, it elects to uh, generate uh, a stoke, and only those things will get to, uh, to uh, uh, you know, spread their DNA. Uh, so if for better or worse, we decide to consider this this uh, phenomenon. How do we go? How does this relate to uh, the models we're talking about now? 
do we need different models? Are we happy with the situation? Uh, what What is the state of affairs? So, I mean, I, I don't know the answer to that, but you know, these kinds of models that I just talked about, they, I mean, you know, I don't want to exaggerate anything, but they don't exist. They haven't existed up until now. This is it's not in the literature. So in that sense, we don't know yet what we could use these models, what, you know, what are all the uses for these kinds of models. One thing I, I would say, and I totally agree, if you just put in that you know, more cells with more diverse cell types have a higher you know, fitness in, something, in some sense, then obviously, yeah, maybe you get the result you want. Maybe it's possible to put in some lower-level assumptions somehow that cells with, you know, more types have some other properties that it's not so clear how they relate to birth or death rate, but some some metabolic properties or something, so that then you can test whether that actually does translate into a, a, a higher birth rate. But in, in the case that that you brought up for us, it's very straightforward to map it here. Because once you have a slug, the survival of all of the cells in the slug is highly correlated with the number of stalk cells, right? The number of cooperators versus the number of defectors. And so you could write a function that says the more cooperators I have, or the bigger I am, the more likely my, my, my spore cells are to survive. And so that's exactly this kind of group level process that you Wait, want. So defectors here are, so we don't know the defectors cells. are either the germline cells are, or rather cells that the, whatever, the cells are, are defectors. No, stock cells are the cooperators. No, yeah. So yeah, what's the cells are but you have, a, but everybody has a big strategy, right? You have a, you start out, you have to start out as a spore cell. You can't start out as anything else. And your offspring are either going to play either spore or stalk. And so then the question is, what happens to the, the probability ratios of those choices? In other words, do you go to a situation where each cell has some stalk, finite stalk spore probability, where you go to a situation where the, all the probability sits on spore, mm -hmm. in which case you're a perfect, a perfect defector. Mm -hmm. And the claim here is that if you if you had single cells that were always single cells, then there's no reason to kill yourself, so you never become stock. So of course you're going to go to the situation where you're all all spore. On the other hand. If you have this collective behavior where you group yourselves together and you say, gee, the probability of the group surviving depends on the number of stock cells and increases with the number of stock cells, then this is exactly what it is. I mean, you don't like like the way Stad likes to do Simpson's paradox, but this is exactly Simpson's paradox. Then you say, okay, uh, think of, well, however you want to think about it, you just do the numbers. You're going to get a situation, provided you make your slope steep enough, where where you, you're going to keep a certain percentage of stock cells because if you're a clump that doesn't have any stock cells, you die. So any, any guys that don't have enough cooperators get ruled out. And because that's inherited, 
because the, the, the choices are inherited and you, you the process. There's someone coming for the conference. What's that mathematician's name or to that Tennessee math situation? Knoxville? Gavrilitz? Right. Sergey Gavrilitz. Yeah, oh, Sergey's coming. Details, but he was talking about He's coming for the conference. My, my take home remembrance is that every time he gets a separation of labor that includes a journal, he likes it. So he might speak more about that. Well, just altruism versus uh, just just the altruism requires conditionality. It requires that some be the recipients, and so anytime you have that at the cell level, you just call it germ sum of distinction. Well, so it, it it makes a big difference whether that the, the difference in your your reproductive capacity is is between zero and one, or is somewhere in between. So it's relatively easy to get a situation where you have some cells that are more productive than others. And, but it's very hard to get them to split so that you have some cells that decide not, not to reproduce at all. Based on the simulation we've run, it's always it's hard to get that strict. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah. Let, let's, uh, let's move this discussion to the common area where there's cookies and tea. And Thank you, Michael. Yeah. Yeah.